Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Natural gas futures surging today, uh, the most at one point since October 2016th, now just the most in a year, but still uh, seeing people start to price in the cold spell that we're expecting uh, pretty soon. Joining us now to talk about that, as well as what's going on with Iran, is Stephen Shork, president of the Shork Group. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start with natural gas. How much further do you expect prices here to rise? Uh, I tell you what, the the sky's the limit in natural gas. The natural gas market has been giving a major red flag for better part of the last year that something is not right in the complex. The bears and the perma bears in this market have continued to trump the fact that we have record production. No doubt there, it is a fact. We do have record production. But what's also a fact is we do not have enough gas in underground storage. So we are going into this winter with the lowest inventory since 2005, about 15% below the 10-year average. So what I've been asking readers of my daily report over the past year, if we have all this production, why don't we have greater supplies. Now, their response is going to be, well, we had a very hot summer, so we had a lot of demand for gas to run our air conditioners. Fair enough. But we also had the third largest drawdown in inventories last winter, and last winter was one of the third warmest winters, or in the bottom third winters as far as heating demand is concerned, over the last 124 years. So the bottom line here is demand is keeping pace with record production. Now that we get this cold front moving in, all of a sudden now we're going to start drawing down inventories of low inventories to begin with sooner rather than later, and the market is finally waking up to this event. Stephen Shork, is it also possible that because the cost of natural gas has been low for so long that oh yeah I'm sorry. That, I was just going to say that it has been low for so long and you have had a switch over from higher cost types of electricity generation that now that you're locked into natural gas it makes sense for them to maintain this price advantage Oh, absolutely. There, there is a situation now where we continue to put all of our eggs into one basket. Uh, we're, we're, we're working down our fleet of, of nuclear generation. Coal is, regardless, regardless of the designs or the intent of this administration, coal is only going one way. So your only real choice is a BTU. And look, I think wind is a wonderful thing. I think solar in specific market areas, Southern California, the Southwest, uh, so forth, are, are great and help contribute uh, to power generation. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about uh, dispatchable energy, natural gas and natural gas alone is your only real choice. And when we continue to grow our demand, be it here domestically, commercially, and industrial, or as we're seeing now with the burgeoning LNG market, and of course, a large exports now via pipeline going into Mexico, uh, we have a situation where, yes, natural gas prices have been so depressed for so long. Right now, the massive production is masking the fact that, and no one want, really wants to seem to focus on the rising demand for natural gas. Natural gas prices are cheap, very cheap compared to, say, 
oil, but I don't expect that to last any time into the foreseeable future. I just am thinking, of course, about the former TXU or Energy Future, about how they basically did this huge leverage buyout when natural gas prices were more than $15, uh, and now they're trading below $4. Do you see us going back to that $15 level uh, should things play out the way you expect heading into Europe? Uh, no, uh, no, absolutely not. If we have to uh, remember that when natural gas prices were surging, this is when uh, everyone, every expert uh, back in the two, early 2000s thought the United States was running out of natural gas. So all of that $15 plus natural gas occurred before the quote unquote shale gale. Uh, so we certainly, the problem, what's been keeping uh, gas prices so low for so long is the fact that we're producing so much of it. For instance, when Hurricane Katrina in 2005 ripped apart the southern, uh, the shallow water Gulf of Mexico, one-fifth of the lower 48 gas came from that one market area, and it was decimated by a hurricane. Now, less than 4% comes from that market area, and a third comes from the Appalachian Basin. So we've had a glut in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, because we did not have enough pipeline capacity to move that gas into specific demand market areas. That is working itself out right now. So we're looking at, for the next couple of years, still a very volatile market, but we will ease. But as we begin to open up access to that market, prices will naturally rise. But no, we are going nowhere near the fact of when we had 10, 11, 12, $15 natural gas. That's not on the table at this point, but certainly sub $3 gas, which is what we had for most of this summer, those days are, are going to be few and far in between as I said, into the foreseeable future. Stephen Shork, if an investor says, I like what he says, it makes sense. I want to go long natural gas. I want to capture some of this increase. Will these price increases drop to the bottom line of companies such as Range Resources, EQT Resources, EOG Resources? Will they benefit? Uh, absolutely. Uh, they're clearly these are, are uh, uh, depending on the specific basin they're in. These are companies similar to oil. Well, what was the big concern three, four years ago when oil prices crashed to twenty-five dollars a barrel? The producer can't compete. But what has happened over the past three, four, uh, three or four years? The producer has learned to compete. So whereas it's still hard to make oil at, uh, a profit at thirty dollars a barrel, companies are certainly making profits at fifty, fifty-five dollars a barrel as their efficiency have improved. And it's the same situation in natural gas. Natural gas has been even in a longer bear market than oil yeah. uh, up until this past year. So certainly the producers are more efficient and therefore will be able to squeeze out margins. Anything above $3.30 is certainly going to be a, a very uh, nice return for these companies. Stephen, uh, before we let you go, I do want to get your thoughts quickly on the price of crude, especially in light of the Iranian sanctions that went back into mm -hmm. effect today. Prices of uh, of, of West Texas are increasing by about a percent. And I'm just wondering how much is that due to the sanctions? Do you think that it's all been priced in at this point? What's your take? It was priced in. What happened with oil is it was an absolute bubble. We got through this summer one of the, strong, the strongest demand seasons ever for oil. We lost access to Canadian oil because of a, an outage at an upgrader up in Calgary. We were exporting for the first time oil in large amounts, and yet we came through this summer relatively unscathed. But between the late summer and September, we saw a uh, massive 22% rally in crude oil prices. That was purely speculation going ahead into the Iran sanctions because
because oil was rallying when oil demand, refineries are in their maintenance season, oil demand is at its weakest. We've since had a 16% correction, so oil prices are right back to where they were before that bubble was inflated. So we had that, that, that peak, and now we've had the ebb, and oil prices are now searching out a bottom. Uh, we're probably right now looking Brent crude oil in the low 70s, uh, WTI in the low 60s. We're probably searching out the bottom right here. In the weeks ahead, demand is going to start to pick up again as these refineries come out of maintenance season. We go into the holiday right. season. So we're looking at probably a, a support for the market right now. We got to leave it there. Thanks very much. Stephen Short, president of the Short Group based in Villanova, Pennsylvania. Price of oil on the NYMEX down 17% since the beginning of October. Oil, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia. Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, said, quote, America wanted to cut to zero Iran's oil sales, but we will continue to sell our oil to break sanctions. He went on to say that we are in a situation of war against a bullying enemy. Here to tell us more about the region and these topics is Ambassador Adam Morelli. He is the former U.S. ambassador to Bahrain and the former deputy spokesman of the U.S. State Department. He joins us from Washington. Ambassador Morelli, thank you very much for being with us. What are your thoughts about the imposition, the reimposition rather, of U.S. sanctions against Iran? Well, I think it's a very big deal. Um, this sanctions regime that the Trump administration has put into effect, uh, I think, is much, much harder, much more comprehensive uh, than previous sanctions, sanctions regimes. And I think it's going to take a huge bite out of the Iranian economy. Ambassador Aureli, I'm wondering whether you think that it's uh, going to have positive effects, positive meaning the effects that the United States intends uh, with respect to imposing uh, these hardships on Iran. Yes and no. Um, I think in the short term, it will have the desired effect of squeezing the Iranian regime financially, denying it resources that it uses to fund terror and, and, and foment instability around the region. But over the long term, the broader goal is to change Iranian behavior uh, more, more broadly. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of that for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, because, as Rouhani says, they, they're not bad at getting around sanctions or at surviving under very stringent sanctions. And number two... Um, you know, look, they're going to try and wait out the Trump administration. And there's, there's, in two years, actually, in, in one day, you might have a Democratic Congress, which, which makes it uh, more difficult to, to impose sanctions or to follow through on them. And look, at the end of the day, what is it going to take to get Iran to change? The regime is, the regime is committed to this course. Uh, I don't think you're going to have a change in policy or a change in behavior unless you have a change in the regime, and the sanctions aren't going to produce that. At the same time that President Rouhani came out with his comments about the sanctions, Iranian state television was showing footage of defense drills taking place in the country's north, and Iran has also launched its largest war games. What does that tell you about the position of the Iranian government? I think, uh, well, a couple of things. Number one, the Iranian government obviously is defiant. They've got to put a brave face 
on a bad situation. But to me, what's more telling is what's happening inside Iran. And basically, you've had uh, uninterrupted protests by key sectors of the Iranian population since December of, 19, of 2017. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Iran is in, uh, in crisis. Uh, the people are rejecting uh, the legitimacy of the clerical regime, which has ruled since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. So what we see coming out of Iran, I think, is more intended for a foreign audience than a domestic audience. And domestically, they've got real problems. Ambassador, given your role as an ambassador, I'm wondering, from the United States' perspective, what imposing these sanctions unilaterally does to international relations? I know that European Union countries, a variety of them, have come out against the reimposition of these sanctions. Well, I guess it depends on which, which allies you're talking about. Uh, the middle, our Middle Eastern allies, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, where I was ambassador, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt and others are greeting these sanctions with high fives all the way around uh, because they're the ones that are most at threat from Iran. Uh, the Europeans, you're right, it's a little, they're, they're much more ambivalent about it. Uh, they, don't, they don't like sanctions as a, as a weapon. They see them as a last resort. They're concerned that this will drive Iran out of the nuclear agreement uh, and they'll resume their nuclear program. At the end of the day, the Europeans are going to have a choice to make between the U.S. market of $3 trillion and, and the Iranian market of $20 billion. That, that's a pretty obvious choice to make. Ambassador, one of the reasons we're focused on Iran is not just oil sanctions, but also the conflict and the ongoing tension between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Can you give us any thoughts about the position of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Is he secure in his position? I think so. Um, you know, the king, the king who is the ultimate authority in Saudi Arabia, has, has doubled down on, his, on the Crown Prince, his son. Uh, I don't see a lot of internal opposition to the, to the Crown Prince, certainly not sufficient to dislodge him. And look, again, at the end of the day, there are two geostrategic pillars of the Middle East, Iran and Saudi Arabia. We have cast our lots with Saudi Arabia. I think that's a smart move. Uh, and uh, look, they're going to be critical to making these sanctions work by increasing production to make up for the shortfall in Iranian exports. Ambassador, do you expect regime change at some point in the near future in Iran? You know, the, the administration has been very careful to say that regime change is not our policy. Uh, but everything they're doing, I think, is designed to create the conditions whereby the Iranians take matters into their own hands and uh, change course. Can you just tell us briefly your perspective about Turkey and the role that it is playing in the Middle East currently? Turkey is playing a very disruptive and negative role in the Middle East. They, they are, first of all, they're ruled by a president who is uh, more, of a, more of a dictator and an authoritarian than almost anybody in the region, number one. Number two, uh, he is motivated by political, uh, by religious ideology. Uh, he, he seeks to establish himself as the primary influence uh, of Sunni Islam, and he is challenging Saudi Arabia in that role. 
Um, I don't think that Turkey is playing a positive role, and they're certainly not acting as a good ally of the United States. Ambassador Adam Morelli, thank you so much for being with us. This week, $83 billion of U.S. government bonds and notes are going to be sold a record, and it comes at a sort of perilous time considering the midterm elections. Joining us now to discuss, John Others, senior editor for Bloomberg Markets and a recent acquirer of Bloomberg's from the Financial Times, longtime nice. Financial Times columnist. We're very, very happy to have you, John. Thank you so Thanks. much for being here. So let's just start with that, this record yeah. amount of U.S. debt sales, government debt mm. sales, at a time when the midterm elections are kind of injecting quite a bit of uncertainty here. Yes, it's it's very concerning. I mean, my latest column, I drew the analogy with the shark from Jaws. You know, if you're worried about the uh, the stock market, then you should be worried about bond yields. It's a, 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 and that ultimately has been the story for the, the last 12 months or so, that every time people think that it's safe to go back in the water, you get a reminder from the, the bond market that... Uh, that it's being asked to bite off an awful lot, that the Fed is actually into true QT and that the government is needing to fund a very aggressive tax cut. So what's the worst case scenario for bond investors this week? My faint, faint hunch, if you look at the past, there is a, there is this urban myth that, um, that congressional gridlock is good uh, for the stock market, which actually doesn't hold water. But it is good for the bond market. And there's a clear enough reason why that might be the case, that administrations in their last two years before uh, before a presidential election plainly have an incentive to prime the pump uh, and, and borrow more. And uh, if you have gridlock, if you have a majority against the administration in the House, then plainly they're going to try to stop them doing that. That is good for bonds. I suspect, I think you're right, the uh, the degree of supply we're seeing at the moment is going to get very problematic indeed for the bond market. We're now possibly in the really weird Alice in Wonderland situation where a democratic majority in the House might possibly, well, probably one of the most left-wing democratic majorities in generations would be good for the bond market because they're not going to let another irresponsible tax cut happen. They're probably going to play politics and not let the Trump administration spend all that it like all that it would like to spend on. So I, I feel slightly strange saying this because you wouldn't normally regard uh, the rise of a fairly left-wing democratic leadership group to the House as being good for the bond market, but I suspect at this point it might be. If money becomes more expensive, mm. doesn't that help inflate away the debt? I suppose it does, but you still need to issue plenty more of it in the uh, in the uh, in the first case. I mean, are you talking? But isn't about there? But isn't there a ready appetite for treasuries? I mean, you know, you go back into history, and people have been talking about how high interest rates are going to kill everything. You go back to 1982; there were 14 percent, and the world didn't come to an end. The world didn't come to an end. The process of getting to 14% from 5 or 6% or wherever we were in the uh, the early 70s wasn't particularly good for the stock market and wasn't particularly good for the economy. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're bad in their own right. Markets are balancing mechanism. You've, you've got to try to clear markets. You've got to reconcile, find some equilibrium. Uh, the journey to an equilibrium that will deal with... Uh, whatever imbalance you have at the moment may well be very painful. I'm not suggesting, I, 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 
personally think that interest rates will have to be higher than than they are at present and that that ultimately will be uh, in the long-term interests uh, of our children, grandchildren, whatever you know, whatever but, kind of political term you want to use. In the short term, it might hurt if you happen to want to make money in the stock market. Well, one thing that I'm struggling to understand mm. is how the trade war uh, that seems to be ongoing between the US and China affects mm. bonds. Yes. Because on one hand, it raises the price of certain goods. On the other hand, it does seem to tamp down growth, which is actually a headwind for inflation and thus would seem yes. to suggest you'd have a bid for bonds. So what, when you sort of equal everything out, is sort of protectionism in a trade war good for bonds or bad for bonds? Well, you've got to throw in one other aspect as well, which is the uh, uh, the uh, demand for treasuries from China. Uh, if China is making, making much less in the way of a surplus, it's buying fewer treasuries. Um, so the, you know, the, there are a number of different factors that, uh, that feed in there. My ultimate suspicion, my suspicion is that we have a trade war if China feels strong enough to have one. And if you have a trade war, then that ultimately is very probably good for bonds for bad reasons, that they become a haven and people are getting out of risk assets. The reason we might not have a trade war, um, there is an analogy here, I think, with um, Reagan and Gorbachev and and the Cold War in the, the 80s. There are two arguments about, one is that Reagan won the Cold War by being aggressive and building up arms. The other argument, he's lucky because he happens to be there when the Soviet Union, which was already about to collapse under its own con- contradictions, did indeed collapse under its own contradictions. It is possible, looking at how the the, the Chinese government is now obviously anxious about credit, talking about Minsky moments, um, very obviously very concerned about this, but resorting to um, more stimulus. It's possible that the, that 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 Trump could be lucky like Reagan was. Thanks very much for being with us. We're lucky to have you, John. Authors is the senior editor for Bloomberg Markets. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. We're broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios, and the topic now is hotels and hotel development. Joining us as an expert is Gilda Perez Alvarado, the chief executive of America's Hotels and Hospitality Group for JAL. Some people may know it as Jones Lang LaSalle. Thank you very much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about JLL and its participation in the hotel industry, because many people look at JLL as brokers, but they don't know that you've got a big remit when it comes to the hospitality industry. That's right. So first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, In terms of what JLL does, you are absolutely correct. We are investment advisors, so our investment sales, where we represent sellers on an exclusive basis is our bread and butter. But in addition to that, we also facilitate financing and we have a very big strategic advisory and asset management division. Okay, so right now, given sort of some of the softening that we're seeing in commercial real estate prices, given the fact that we did see that glut of hotels in New York City, where are you seeing the biggest opportunities for your clients, Hilda? So definitely New York. We are now in the midst of a recovery story. This is a surprise because New York was number one territory that people said was overbuilt overbuilt with hotels. 
It's, listen, it's the most resilient market worldwide. We have seen a tremendous amount of inventory come in, over 50% of uh, new room supply. Uh, you and I were speaking earlier, there's also the shadow inventory that is being propelled by Airbnb. But having said that, all of the new rooms have been absorbed, demand is at an all-time high, and we're finally seeing recovery at the bottom line. Do you see that there's going to be a consolidation as this recovery takes hold? Because there are all these new concepts, the live work concept. Uh, this has been something, for example, uh, the student hotels offering of both accommodations, but also student housing and workspaces. Absolutely. You know, like with every other industry, bigger is better. So we are definitely expecting more consolidation on the traditional operator side. But, you know, to the point that you just raised, there's a conversion right now towards flexible usage of real estate. And so, yes, um, student accommodations, look at what uh, WeWorks is doing. They have We Work, We Live, We Stay. Uh, shortly, We Play. I mean, I it's everything. I we the, Grow, the, you've the seen child that one. Care, the yes. child care, which I thought was great. Can you imagine if there was child care in every office? Anyway, moving right along. Hilda, I'm wondering about Airbnb. You mentioned it, but... What about some of these profound disruptions in the entire industry? How much have they already affected valuations and what do you expect going forward? Um, listen, no one's been able to measure the, the uh, direct impact of Airbnb into hospitality. Now, one of the big impacts that we've had in New York is typically before Airbnb, we had 180 sold out nights. When that happens now, the amount of supply of Airbnb, the faucet just turns on, the tap turns on. So you could have in any one night from 20 to 40,000 rooms just come in the market. Now, there's more regulation from, um, you know, from the city, from the public side, looking into Airbnb. And to be honest, it's been a great wake up call for the hospitality industry. You know, disruption is good. We need to, you know, move on. And people are now more focused on experiences, which is where Airbnb sells. Can we just go through some of the major markets? Because you have a lot of international experience. You ran the JAL business out of Madrid. Where, where are the best markets right now? Our investors are focused on the markets with the most liquidity. So in the United States, that'd be your New Yorks, that'd be your San Francisco, LA, people love Hawaii right now. In Europe, it's all about the UK, it's London, it's really interesting, despite Brexit. So, you know, with the devaluation of the pound, you have tourism on the rise, so hotels are actually doing quite well. Western Europe is extremely important. There's investors that have a resort theory as well, so Mediterranean, uh, Spanish resorts to be more specific. And then Hong Kong and Singapore are definitely top picks. I'm just wondering, we do talk a lot here about the sort of geopolitical backdrop here of rising tensions and concerns about borders. And I'm wondering how that has affected tourism, if at all, and shifts the landscape for hotels and hospitality. To be honest, uh, Lisa, we have not seen a major uh, decrease or major impact on, on tourism. In fact, we're at all-time record highs. I think from an investment perspective, it does play a very big role. So, you know, all chips are on the U.S. table right now. We have the strongest macroeconomic fundamentals out of any other mature market in the world. And so investors do want to keep on investing in the United States, despite what is happening from a geopolitical level. Is there a specific metric or number that if you want to understand the hotel business you need to pay attention to i mean cap rates for commercial real estate is it room nights is it occupancy levels what's the one thing that you should begin to understand if you want to 
be an expert in this? So for us, it's a combination of factors, but first one, RevPAR, revenue per available room, it's extremely important, price per keys. We've seen a reset in some of the major markets, New York in particular, because of what we mentioned before from additional supply. Uh, cap rates are also important. But Pimp, to be honest, it varies across the sector, right? So we can have international investors be very happy buying luxury product at zero to negative yields and having, you know, kind of the value buyer wanting to look at select service or economy at 6%, 7% or more. Thank you so much for being with us. Really interesting. Thank you so much. Hilda Perez-Alvarado, she's Chief Executive of the America's Hotels and Hospitality Group for JLL, Jones Lang LaSalle, Inc., talking about all things hospitals and hospitality. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.